This is Caleb and Kent on Geek Hour today, talking about all things comic books and all that fun stuff. So, Kent. Arch. Are you there? Uh, barely. Okay. I just had to outrun an Arctic wolf. This connection is kind of bad. I should really be on a landline. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So, take me back. Take me way back. Take me back to the very beginning. Take me back to before you existed. Take me back. <laughs> Back when you were a gleam in your father's eye, before uh, you were sperm. George. George. George of the jungle, as <laughs> long as he can be. Okay. No, no, take me back. Watch out for that tree. Okay. Okay, stop that. You're scaring me. Watch out for that. You're scaring Bridget and Fraser fans. Okay, anyway, so take no, me back. That, that, that was, that cartoon was airing about the time I was a glimmer oh, in my father's eyes. Whatever song that was playing during your conception, take me back. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was George of the Jungle. <laughs> the TV was on in the background. <laughs> it was. Setting the mood. Nothing it, sets it the mood explain, like that. It would explain a lot. It, maybe your mom had a thing for George of the Jungle. It's, no, it was, it was the cartoon then. It wasn't uh, Yeah. The, the, live movie action. Was, the movie was based on the cartoon. Right, right. So yeah. that was they. They took something and made it live action. As they do. Okay. So take me back. Okay. The first time you read a comic or you saw a superhero or saw it on TV or saw a cartoon or saw something sci-fi fantasy-ish or the first time you put on the cape. Take me back. And it will. Pro- there was a stack of comics. My grandmother, like I said, she worked at the Stanford. Um, Gift shop and gift shop and was a volunteer and she would the yep. Stanford like Stanford University Stanford University at a medical center oh she worked in the gift shop yep okay yep. Stanford Medical Center does a lot of experimental stuff they they have the Ronald McDonald House there which is for ch- needy children where my friend's daughter was having had like a heart transplant and recovery time so they do a lot of lot of really good work a lot of cutting edge work. And the rest g- of your story is this tragic. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. There, hey, tragic beginnings I, like I, Batman I himself. Okay. And, and well, like you knew, she, would, she would bring okay. comic books home from the hospital, from their, their shop. All right. Are these and like 10 cent comic books? What's going on here? No, no, no. This is like is early this like 70s. like Archie? Is this Donald Duck? No. She had, she, amazingly, she didn't bring that home to me, really. I mean, a couple of Richie Riches, I think. Mm-hmm. But in that stack was Flash. Some, uh, and an Action Comics. Heathcliff. Okay. Uh, Superman vs. Gorilla Grodd. The, uh, I think it was the uh, Batman, which was so they Penguin and Talia. Uh, 100-page, which got me into the, the reprints. And the first one I picked to read, and this is probably... Mm-hmm kicked off my my um my obsession with creators meeting their creations okay it was the issue of the flash where carrie bates wrote himself into the comic really and the cover has has flash like legs running and 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 like an arm reaching out and grabbing him and the flash can't move even though he's running as fast as he can and there's a mysterious figure saying now do you believe that you can't make a move without me Flash. Wow, that's some heady stuff for a kid. You're like, whoa. And what probably also explains why I love Two-Face so much. I always liked him as a tragic figure, but the free, mm-hmm. in that stack, my first Justice League of America was the one where they teamed up with Two-Face. And Two-Face is like the lead character. And Flash of is telling people. him, you, you can't team up with Two-Face, he'll betray you. And ironically, during the comic, the Justice League ends up kind of betraying Two-Face instead. Wow. 
Yeah, I, I felt bad for the guy from right from the start, and he ends and he ends up telling the story in in, in third person to his cellmate, and his cellmate, you know, that's next to him is it turns out to be the Joker, but the Joker is laughing because if Two Face hadn't done what he done, the universe would have been destroyed by the Cordians. So like my first wow. Two Face story is Two Face like helped. It's pretty epic. Save the universe basically. For that kid, Two Face doesn't always die ten minutes after a transformation. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> You know, that reminds me of um, when Bruce, Tim, and Paul Dini were doing their comic that their Two-Face story is one of your favorite stories. Oh, that is, that is yeah, yeah. His, they, they managed to get how, you know, tragic and, and pursued by this, this inner, like, second persona and managed to pull that off for kids, which is really difficult. The animated series Two-Faces is phenomenal because you actually got the split personality you know the the politician, the the anger and the tragedy, and it just made so much sense. And as Two Face, he's and he was friends with Bruce Wayne. Yeah, it wasn't just like we both know Rachel. There was right. actually a, a relationship there. But even as Two Face, you bought him as a supervillain because he's literally the smartest of the villains. Yeah, like like not smart like Riddler smart, but he's the most crafty and cunning and planning a heist. He's the one. He's like he actually has a plan. Where the other villains seem like they're more like. Like all mm -hmm. over the map and just doing goofy things, to, you know. Now, now and, remind and, and me, a of... lot of Two Faces stuff involved involved uh, dealing with with uh, bad cops, cops who were mm -hmm. uh, who were also Two Faced themselves, and so you got a little bit of that, you know. And sometimes it was it was Harvey Dent's persona trying to fight back and, and see him. I I don't know. I liked for the most part. I liked what they did with him on this show. They didn't do enough with him, but. In the animated series, the story is he's running for district attorney. Yes, yes. And then he, he gets yeah, it. And then he builds his dense dream, the, the prison. Mm -hmm. Then that's before. Oh, he is DA, and he's dating Poison Ivy. Oh, okay. Remember, that's the first time Harvey Dent's introduced. And no, he, I mean, in the animated series, how, how does the transformation happen? Different than it does in the comic book. It's very different. Uh, instead of, as a matter of fact, it's is that the face the laying on the ground and half of the, his face is covered in it's, gas it's, or something? It's not the courtroom. It's not the courtroom scene where he gets acid thrown at him. It's it's not he's, the Tommy Lee Jones version. He's he's confronting Boss Thorn. Boss Thorn knows that he's already had a history of mental illness uh -huh. and a second, like big bad Harvey persona that he had to undergo hypnosis theory to get rid of, hmm. and he's threatening to blackmail Harvey Dent with the. Um, with the casebook studies, it was psychological profile, and as he's threatening him, Harvey says, there's only one problem. You're talking to the wrong Harvey. And he becomes big bad Harvey, and he just totally wails on all of Thorne's goons, and in a fight with five guys, and holds his own, and chases uh, uh, one guy out who grabs the, uh, the case files, and as he grabs him out, he's chasing him, another goon fires at him with a gun, fires at him and Batman, and accidentally hits this vat. They're in a warehouse with, you know, these chemicals, and, and hits the chemicals and causes an explosion. And the explosion is what causes, in the animated series, Harvey to have half his face blown off. That's some good stuff right there. Because in the series, people did get acid in the face all the time, and it was great. <laughs> And they, they, the, the best part is, is when people get the, the Joker laugh because they can't really kill anyone, but the laugh is like worse than death. And you kind of have some optimism. Oh, maybe it wears off after a while and they're kind of fine, but it definitely incapacitates them for a while. Yeah, and they send them to the hospital and they're like, oh, we'll, we'll yeah, put the antitoxin through them. Or they're, yeah, they're in solitary confinement for a few days and whatnot. 
Okay. At any rate, so um, you're getting these comics about how old were you? Um, that's the Stanford. I guess I would have been about six or seven. Six or seven. Five, five to seven. Yeah, okay. right around there. Now, at the same time, did you also have any interest in kind of fantasy sci-fi? I did. I did. I was reading um, the, uh, the A Wrinkle in Time. Okay. I had, I had started off way back in, again, when I was like almost like kindergarten, first grade, I was reading, I read like the entire Hardy Boys series, all of Encyclopedia Brown, which I love. I love like teen mystery stuff. Scooby-Doo was, was my other favorite, the original Scooby-Doo series. Scooby-Doo but meets my, Batman? But no, no. <laughs> let's, let's go back Two a little bit. Two great detectives my, my, up. My first, my first exposure to animation was not American animation. It was Speed oh, Racer. Speed Racer. Speed, Filmation. No, Speed no. Racer was from Japan. From Japan. Speed Racer is anime. Sorry, I'm hot. And it had like two and three part stories. It had spies. It was very James Bond like. It was super sleek gadget Ghost cars. Speed People Racer. actually died. There were tragic endings to characters. You can you can watch some of the Speed Racer shows and see kind of where the tragedy Bruce Tim wow. brought to the Batman animated series. And so what after, was this on? so after it, it was in syndication, like on okay. UHF in the in the mornings before I went to school. Just great, great, great stuff, um, especially for a kid. You know, it's you know, in hindsight, again, it's not as good as I remember it, but the story storytelling is still far more dramatic and complex than anything Americans were doing for kids. You know, that, and let's face it, when you have when you have people in charge of cartoons who are basically saying, "Fantastic Four, we can't have Human Torch. Kids will light themselves on fire. We got to replace them with a happy little robot." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you, you got people in charge. You got people in charge of children's programming who don't really know anything about kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really dumb things were, down. Were you and, that's, or, uh, and that's what happened to Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo originally was scary looking ghosts. Had had some actual clues throughout the episode to figure out. Was an, it was a genuine mystery and dark, dark backgrounds, dark backdrops. The kids themselves were fun, but the mysteries themselves were really just scary enough. And then it was like someone said, "Lighten it up, put color cards, give them a puppy sidekick, you know, Scrappy, yeah. make them team up with the Three Stooges." You know, it's just and it just became a comedy thing. And it's like all star Scooby Doo. And you know why? I think it's because. Because for, for kids, just doing slapstick is just easy. You don't really have to think that much about it. You know, it's, it doesn't have to make any... Like when you saw Scooby-Doo meets Batman. Yeah. Now, tell me, you, you picked that up. You said, oh, this is, this is... I remember this from my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> and it was worse than I remembered it. <laughs> oh, just... And, and the animation oh, quality. You could, you could almost see where they just didn't even bother like doing like even twos or threes they just took the same character and moved them up and down a little bit to make them jump in the same drawing I have to address though the genius of Hanna-Barbera and their formula which is this and I was talking to Michael Mallory about this who wrote a book about Hanna-Barbera and it's basically the five teenagers formula so two girls two guys something like a dog the speed buggy the shark some kind of anamorphic dynamite uh, you know sidekick and um, even Josie and the Pussycats to an extent. And uh, but Scooby Doo has really stood the test of time well, and really has a, a great fan base, and they keep making them. No, and I and I think Hanna Barbera came back around. I mean, I met the direct one of the directors of Scooby Doo at our community center, and he he told me. I mean, he said, "Yeah, I was I was actually the you know in charge of making Scrappy Doo," and just that instant this moment I've been waiting for my whole life. But what he, <laughs> but he said, and I really had to tone them down because the studio wanted six of those puppies. Oh, 
I said, oh, thank you. That would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said, he, Scrappy takes up quite a bit of space. I, I think most of the fans of the series can, can say the best part of the live-action movie was discovering who the villain was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One of, the, one of the high points of the live-action film was definitely... No, I mean, and, and I think they... This is why I, I guess I never understood about Scooby-Doo. They had a great... They had the formula, right? Yeah. You had the formula. You had the ghosts. You had the, you the had teenagers the mysteries. running around on adventures in a van. And then they kept mixing it up. I mean, Scooby's all-star movies, some of them were good. Some of them were, were interesting, although I felt like the hour-long format often was a half-hour episode that sort of had a lot of padding. Yeah. Um, but the potential with the, uh, the interactions with the other characters was... To me, I was super excited for it when I was a yeah. kid. I loved looking forward to that every time. Who are they meet this? Who are they meeting up with this week? Who are they teaming up with, and how are they teaming up together? But and, did you uh, like know who like you know Sonny and Cher were and, and half of these guest stars? I, I did. I, yeah. I, at the time, if you were growing up, you understood. I mean, I watched Three Stooges reruns. You had Harlem Globetrotters, yeah. Sonny and Cher. I think they had Don Knotts. I used to love Don Knotts. Or, uh, did you ever see um, um, the, the the Ghost of Mister uh, Ch Chicken? I think uh, it was. Oh yeah, yeah, Don Knotts. Yeah, that that's was, a great was, movie. That is a great movie. Yeah. And he, he Don, ironically, that character is a great fit with the Scooby Doo universe. Yeah. They ever have Marie and Osmond? No, Donnie and Marie. I th want to say they did, but yeah, I can't I remember good. them actually doing having that. But yeah, Sonny and Cher. And at, at what point did you realize that Shaggy was a stoner? <laughs> Pro probably it's wasn't very until college. Right now, okay. <laughs> Always has the munchies, has the hair. Okay. I always love Matthew Lillard's description of how to get his voice. Oh, yeah, what was that? Sh Shaggy's, uh, well, Shaggy, you, you kind of want to go really, really high. You go really, really low. And for Shaggy, you got to find somewhere right in the middle. You got to go really high, really low. And kind of as you're going up and down, you find right, kind of right here, man. <laughs> that, he, he did a good job on that. Who's your favorite Scooby-Doo character? My favorite Scooby-Doo character? Yeah. I, I like Daphne because she was hot, <laughs> and Sarah Michelle Gellar. Oh. Uh, uh, Scooby, I, I mean, Scooby himself was probably my favorite character. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it when he somehow was the one who managed to figure out the uh, the mystery. <laughs> and there's a good message of facing your fears and you know with your friends and stuff. And I loved, but but I think it's something the live action films really always got right, and the the Cartoon Network one especially, mm -hmm. like Zombie Island. And oh, I love Zombie ones. Island. Oh, that's my favorite Scooby Doo cartoon of all time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they really like after years of kind of the TV show getting more and more watered down for younger and younger audiences. It's like Hanna Barbera said, "All right, we're relaunching this. We're making really good animation, and we're bringing back the scary to Scooby Doo." Yeah, and they they really did on that. I have. I have some of my students who were telling me they can't watch that movie because they saw it, they were so young, and it so frightened them, they cannot go back and watch it again. And I think that's a good thing. Scooby-Doo yeah. should be right on the edge. It should be, you know, like PG-13-ish, you know, creepy. You know, ghost stories for kids. And it should be real mysteries, too. It should integrate ghosts and real mysteries. And I think Zombie Island did an amazing job of, of doing both, of finally giving them real ghosts yeah like a real like like actual supernatural adversaries okay so you're a kid in the 70s you're exposed to comic books reading some oh, I, I, was, I was just getting yeah. back on this the friendship between shaggy and scooby they were yes. the two outsiders so shaggy's the kid who doesn't have any friends he's kind of a loner 
and a weird kid, 60s throwback at this point, you know, and, and, and Scooby's his best friend, and they're... Yeah, it's much better than Snowflake over here. And they face their fears. <laughs> Snowflake, don't you listen to it. <laughs> okay, so you're a kid in the 70s, you're finally reading uh, Justice League and some stuff. Was it Justice League? Because Two-Face helps the Justice League? What's that? Was it a Justice League comic that where Two-Face helped the Justice League? Yeah. Yeah, okay. that was... So at what point do you... That was, that was my first exposure to, like, the uh, the antimatter universe and the Cordians, which is kind of ironic because they really came from Green Lantern, but Green Lantern wasn't much of a part of that story, so I didn't actually make that connection for a while. So you're, you're thrown in to midstream to this big, complex story, that, and you kind of like the mystery of it? And uh, I did. And then it was followed up by the, uh, again, Carrie Bates and Elliot Magan, who was a, wrote Superman, wrote themselves into a Justice League story, where Carrie Bates was on Earth 2 and took over the whole planet and enabled all the supervillains of Earth 2 to... to um, to, to defeat the Justice Society, then they disguised the Justice Society as the villains, then they, they brought the Justice League over, and the Justice Leaguers killed the Justice Society. That was That's like, pretty cool stuff. That was insane. That was really insane. And I just went, wow, there are two Earths? And that was my first exposure to the whole multiverse thing. Do you, do you read Silver Age now and be like, this over-explaining captions and dialogue is just horrible and cr- cringing as I'm reading this? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I just ignore the captions and just read the character dialogue. Yeah. And even that is like, I'm going to explain to you what I'm doing as I'm doing it. I've got to punch him in the face right with my right hook before he gets <laughs> yeah. a chance to shoot me with his darkness zapper. <laughs> yeah. Caption, the dark knight gets ready to punch the scarlet speedster. <laughs> I've only got one chance to get this right. <laughs> as we can see. Okay, so um, so at what point do you start going out and getting comics on your own, or so go to the newsstand? So in a, in, after a couple of years, yeah, I, I I I ventured out. My grandmother made the mistake of, of of bringing me home one day and stopping by a different laundromat or dry cleaners than we usually go to, where this this uh, or maybe it was our normal supermarket was out of milk, and there was this this little shop that was that was a few blocks away. And, 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 oh, I guess they had great meats. You know, it was like this little kind of hole-in-the-wall butcher place, but it also had a mini-mart. And they had a little spinner rack of cartoons that was, or comic books that was hidden, like, by the stock room. And I just went, holy cow, is this within biking Batman. distance of the house? <laughs> I, and I just holy went, every, every, I just sat there for, like, I was riding my bike and sent over there for, like, a like, couple Can hours. we do laundry today? Yeah. Can we go to the laundromat? <laughs> Yeah, that other one, that other place. No, when I, when I, when I, uh, and I learned how to ride a bike and I overcame my, like, how far, you know, that was the first time I was, I was motivated to, to bicycle somewhere that was really out of range of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You know, like, with not, you know, like, outside of a few blocks in the house to a different neighborhood. And then every week, man, I would be down there, just, uh, by, you know, with as much money as, as I could spare on my allowance to buy, and per- You're buying them from the laundromat? No, buying them from the spinner rack at the store. It wasn't a laundromat. It was a... It was like, like a convenience a, store? Yeah, it was a convenience store. Something, okay. But they had a really good, like... Did uh, they have Archie and stuff? Produce. Yeah, they had Archie, and I was really interested in Archie, too, surprisingly. Really? Liked, how, how much Archie did you read? 
That 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 I realized was is from like the forties. Like that goes way far back. Well, they were still publishing new issues of it, and I was, and at this point, I was like like fourth grade, so I was really curious what high school was like. Mm-hmm. So that 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 seemed really authentic to me. Like it seemed like normal. And you looking went, forward oh. to that love triangle. Looking forward that to yeah. Look at looking Betty. forward to yeah the blonde the yeah. <laughs> And and you know like most kids I I wanted I tried to identify with the kid who looked more like me which was kind of Reggie unfortunately so I was more like the bad guy in that one. But we're, before we're, that it was always Superman because he was Clark Kent and I'm Kent and we're in black hair. And... Yes, but before we get to that, where do you stand on Archie is on effing Mr. Weatherby? <laughs> the famous chasing Amy scene. Oh, that's because Jug- Jughead's wearing his uh, butch. Uh, no, I think I think life with Archie speaks for that right now well enough. Or how Archie and Jughead and the gang grew up, and Archie addressed the issue in their own comic books by coming up with the Kevin Keller character, and now they can just say, okay, he's you know, he's where we address you know the the gay issues in this comic. <laughs> okay. Archie, Archie's a good friend of them, and uh, but he's... But so, so this is like fourth grade. At at this point, are you watching like Super Friend and, and stuff? Yeah, they said. Of course he never committed to either one of them, because he wanted them in a three-way. Yeah. <laughs> three-way. Genius. Genius. So what point are you watching Adam West or Super Friends and stuff? I don't have any kids. That's right. Wait. No. Okay. okay. What? No, I don't think anyone will listen to this. I'm just quoting Kevin Smith on that. That wasn't me. <laughs> just quoting Kevin. Okay, so at what point are you watching, like, Adam West and Super Friends and stuff? Elementary school? Yeah, early elementary school. Syndication. Mm-hmm. That was uh, Adam West. And, it, and, and, were, and were you underwhelmed? It wasn't the comic book. At this point, the comic book was, was Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff. I mean, it was, it was, it was Rachel Ghoul. It was, you know, so Day of the out Demon. Of the Silver Age? Right, so, even... right, the Bronze Age. So I'm reading these stories, right? I'm reading Two Face Unleashing Nuclear Holocaust on Washington, D.C. I'm reading, you know, the Joker's, you know, this, the next one will kill you, where the Batman is slowly dying of laughing gas. And the more he laughs, the faster he dies. And everything is funny to him, including funerals. So you were in a unique position of being exposed to the comics before the media. Before the the Batman TV show. And then I kind of watched the show and I went like, what is this? (laughs) So I, I mean, although I enjoyed, I enjoyed it for what it was. I liked it when they were fighting and it was fun and colorful. Were you a Saturday morning cartoon person? I was very much a Saturday morning cartoon person. I live for Saturday morning cartoon. My dad took me to Disneyland for my fifth birthday, but it was like the season, the premiere of all-star Scooby-Doo movies. Like, yeah. so I'd never seen it, right? It was the first episode ever. And I woke up, and my dad's like, do you want to get to the park? It was like 9 a.m. Saturday. I'm like, can we just wait, you know, like, one hour, Dad, so I can watch this? <laughs> before? But you know, we're at Disneyland. Don't you want to go to... I had never been to Disneyland before oh, either. Man. And I'm like, can I just watch this one cartoon before we go to the park? <laughs> like, my dad's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Stupid kid, I'm taking you to Disneyland. <laughs> Okay. So Batman. So and you mentioned Super Friends, and there was, but there was also a Batman animated series on a different station. Oh, by Filmation. Snap. Filmation. Filmation. Yeah, I haven't heard of this one. Which is the same, the same company that had done the Star Trek series, which was also awesome, amazing, mm-hmm. and that was my first exposure to Star Trek. I'd never watched the live action show before I saw the animated series, and that animated series has won a lot of awards for its writing. 
um, Tarzan as well. It, it was much more straight drama in in the Filmation universe. Even the bat, and even though the Batman animation series from Filmation used Adam West and Burt Ward for the voices, really, bet you didn't know that. How long did this run for? I think just one or two seasons. Like uh, it wasn't very long, but it was very good. And they did the whole like split split episode thing. So it was like this and Hanna Barbera, the big competitors. Yeah. Yeah, um, and Filmation brought. It's funny the Filmation animated series was a lot more serious than the TV show, but they still managed to work in Batmite on a regular basis. Who's Batmite? The little imp from the Fifth Dimension who dresses like oh, Batman yeah. in a floppy cartoon. They make fun of him on the the animated series sometimes. But, but they have like the same rogues gallery. Yeah, yeah. Joker's there. Riddler, Catwoman, Scarecrow. I think Scarecrow is in those, or was he just Super Friends? And were you kind of aware of like uh, George Reeves and and the serials at all? Yes, I would. I would come home from school, and he'd be on syndication in the afternoons, so I would kind of catch the adventures of Superman. Okay, so first exposure to Superman on the Crown Jewel on TV. On my first exposure to well, Superman was probably right. that, um, and then and then there was and and again, Filmation had done a Superman animated series from the '60s. Really, that's the one. That's the one I was showing that you. That was uh, yeah, from, kind of based on the radio. Yeah, kind of like kind where of they thing. announce everything. Look, that diamond mountaintop is exploding. I'd better go stop it. Superman rushes to stop the diamond mountaintop <laughs> yeah. from exploding. <laughs> but that was even before Max Fleischer. No, no, Fleischer was way before no, but that. No, that, you saw that one before you watched yeah. no, the, the Fleischer, Fleischer stuff. I didn't really realize what awesome American animation was. My parents kept telling me how great Disney was, but at this time they were, I was watching, what, Aristocats. Yeah, you know, so it uh, rescuers. Like it wasn't Peter Pan and uh, Pinocchio. No, I uh, my first exposure to that kind of animation was um, when they re-released Sleeping Beauty, mm-hmm. and I saw that in a theater, and I went, "This is what my parents were talking about. This is gorgeous." So this stuff wasn't as widely available everywhere. Yeah. And and I and I forget, but somewhere along with that re-release, somebody had also put out um, the Fleischer Brothers Superman cartoon, like in front of it. Like one of the theaters had had gotten a hold of some prints or something, and I went, "This is incredible! <laughs> Look at that! Effects, explosions, molten lava, like brilliant, like deep shadows and airbrush, and and what am I looking at? Like the, everything's so alive and fluid, and the characters are lifelike. And I didn't know that was rotoscoping at the time, yeah, but still, it was, it was you know, very it, big budget at the time. Oh, it, it's, I was to learn later on that those, those animated shorts were, like, almost up until today, minute for minute, the most expensive animation ever produced, if you broke yeah. the cost down per minute. Yeah, they look great, though. There's a reason why Bruce Timm went back to that look for, for Batman and for Superman. And would those be, like, 50s in the 50s at this point? I th- 40s, I think. Oh, even before. For 30s. 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 30s and 40s. Well, after 38. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So it's the 40s. Probably yeah, the 40s. Okay. But it was 39, 40, because I think it was before the, the U.S. entered World War II. Yeah. Because it wasn't playing a big theme in the cartoons at the time. Mm-hmm. And then after they entered the war, they I think they stopped production. But, wow. So yeah. it would be attached And Sky Captain, to, The World uh, of Tomorrow, like, pretty much got all their inspiration for a lot of that Art Deco design mm. from those cartoons. Okay, stop trying to plug Sky Captain. Hey. <laughs> it's not happening. You're not bringing it back. It's not. <laughs> it's, you, you know, know, if we kickstart, if we start a campaign. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, you can start making a movie from your own home computer <laughs> and actually get it going. That's, that's all I'm saying. It's happened before. It can happen again. 
Yes, okay. So, um, so at that point... Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie can't all be wrong. Okay. Yes, they can. Was, uh, so was the Max Fleischer cartoon one of the uh, reasons you got into animation? No, I, th- I mean, I, th- I think I really got into animation for, you know, because I loved Scooby-Doo and Speed Racer and, and those. But I, I would say the Fleischer cartoons are... That was like a, the, a the, new level. The Fleischer cartoons, yeah, were literally like, this is what can be done with animation. Yeah. This, th- you cannot do this in live action. Yeah. And then you saw Cinderella and stuff. And... Yeah, Sleeping Beauty. The dragon. Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty. Okay. Okay, so what else um, coming out of elementary school, um, you know, what, what other kind of comic stuff are you into that, that keeps this love affair going for so long? Um, at that, Marf, that point, you're, Marf, not, you're not becoming a kid anymore. You're becoming a teenager. Marv Wolfman and George Perez's Teen Titans, which came out, I was right at the perfect age for that comic to come out. I was, you know, just entering high school myself. So, and that is okay. arguably like one of the all-time great comic book runs ever. And they they really I I'd say Marvel had already kind of pioneered the the sort of more soap opera-ish. My, you know, Peter Parker actually has a troubled life. He's not perfect. He deals with day-to-day issues. But and uh, Marvel had been doing it really well with Chris Claremont and the X-Men in as far as the superheroes having their own super soap opera life. But I think I think I think Marv and George really nailed something different with Teen Titans in that they they integrated the personal and private lives of these characters and their troubles and managed to to juggle those those subplotty things that go on forever in TV now but still managed to give every issue a beginning middle and end and a real story and came up with great iconic villains um, and each character really represented something. There's there's something about when you get too much soap opera going in comics, I feel like every issue just blends into the next. You never really feel like anything's finished or complete. Or, or I mean, things wrap up, but they, they leave so much undangling on. There's there's never that feeling of, wow, that story is complete but to Perez me. And but Wolfman told a complete story. Managed to keep just enough dangling plot threads that I wanted to come back and find out where those threads went to. But when they, when they wrapped up a story, they really wrapped it up thematically character-wise, personality-wise, you know, and it wasn't always happy. Uh, like, you like, with, the... like with Changeling and, and, um, and when he, he tried to rescue his, his father, Steve Dayton, after they went after the murderers of the Doom Patrol and, and they, they caught them, and it's not this great victory. It's, it's, it's more like an adopted son and an adopted father trying to reconcile this great pain they have in their life through losing his adopted mother and the other members of the Doom Patrol, and it's but it feels... You're a very emo child, clearly. You're like, I love this dark stuff. I, I, I don't know if I love <laughs> I want. The, I like the alternate history stories. <laughs> I was into all the complicated stories from a very young age. I love I, very angsty. Age. Okay, yeah. so uh, haven't you met uh, Wolfman a few times? I have, I have. It's Ow. a great guy. Um, my friend Scott Sava, who I, I helped with on Dreamland Chronicles, which was... It eventually became like one of the world's first online all CGI comic books, mm-hmm. and you should watch it. DreamlineChronicles.com. It's great. It's been going. It's got like three thousand pages. It's been going for eight years now, and and Scott had known Marv for a while. They Marv had written the first ever Spider-Man novel, novel Mayhem in Manhattan. And oh, Scott okay. loved it. I loved it. I loved it too. And Scott wanted to adapt it in comic form. He wanted to draw a graphic novel version of it. 
And Marv ended up loving Scott's work on Spider-Man, you know, doing Spider-Man as a CGI character. So he ended up, you know, doing some sample pages of the initial Spider-Man Doc Ock fight from Mayhem in Manhattan using CGI artwork. And Marvel loved it so much they ended up approaching, you know, Scott showed it to him at Comic-Con and they ended up making the Spider-Man Quality of Life miniseries and Scott got to do that miniseries in all CGI and it was the first Spider-Man CGI book. Anyway... So that was so Mar- Marv had known Scott for for a while and introduced us. And You're Marv, on like a first name basis with him, though. Uh, you know, was well, he'll he'll recognize. Yeah, say, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, when you see, if you see no, he was Connor. really, really, really nice to me. I, I, it was you know, I tried really hard not to be a fanboy though. I had to really clamp down a lot <laughs> and not like, <gasps> you know, and, and uh, did you ever like? And thank I, him, I, though, I, like, I thank you for Teen yeah. Titans. Like, oh, I asked him to sign my my hardcover Crisis on Infinite Earths. He looked at me and said, "You paid a hundred dollars for that? Of course I'll sign that. Don't worry about it. You're not a fan. Like, I, yes, I'm yeah. shocked you paid a hundred dollars for I that. Can I sign? Can you sign something for me for buying that? <laughs> <laughs> like, just about. He, wait, he, wait, wait. One comic was a hundred dollars. It was the DC published like a leather bound collected crisis ult, you know edition and he and it signed was, it yeah wow it, and, and he signed it and right. and he actually he would have like this after comic con party after priorities of a fanboy here and he lives in in um, Edgar Rice Burroughs old uh, estate area oh nice Tarzana the Tarzana the city was bought from Edgar Rice Burroughs and it was the Tarzana farm and he owned the and, whole city yeah he basically <laughs> well the city became the area that his land was on his acreage wow. was on and it was a farm; it wasn't a city. But but he uh, but the condi- the stipulation was he had they had to keep the name, and the city has always tried to downplay those origins. Oh, because it's Tarzan, Tarzana. Okay. Yeah. I just got this, that. This city never wants anyone to know that they really are named after Tarzan. Oh, <laughs> see. And and it was cool. And Marv showed me like this 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 patio area where Burroughs used to sit and write and, and Marv's written every version of Tar- Tarzan and John Carter of Mars for all the different comic book companies. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's just, I, it was, it was almost like meeting somebody who's like, you've been a big fan of their work and then finding out they're just as much of a fan as you are yeah. and just, and just totally loving the, the conversations and the gap and, you know, and all of his friends were comic creators. They did this after con bash and that was, and those were just fun. I mean, it was just great. It was it was just like everything you do with your friends when you go out to big sci-fi movie openings. You go out to Denny's afterwards and after staying in line for six hours and you talk about it. And you talk about all your favorite sci-fi films. You just stay up till four in the morning drinking coffee and over-caffeinating on that. And that was exactly what this was like. It was so great. It was a very, very exciting story that you need to share right now. This is the inside scoop, people, of the time that you pitched John Carter to Disney. <laughs> oh boy! Speaking of Edgar Rice, saying that you are, I I had um, every year at Disney they they had something called the Gong Show, where where everyone in a feature animation anyone could could stand up in front of you know Michael Eisner and and at the time Katzenberg and Roy Disney, and 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 the heads of the studio and you met and Roy you, Disney, damn, yeah. And he actually, um, he actually came to our department to uh, to talk to us personally when they were shutting us down. I've it's heard really nothing nice but good things about Roy Disney, and I have nothing but good things to say about him. Okay. He, he, Otherwise, I, Disney I, will find you and. I, I wrote a memo. I wrote a memo <laughs> to him, and everyone in my department signed it. And he actually came down and talked to us about 
uh, shutting down the department. It was living really, legend, well, not living, living. but <laughs> former legend. And even better than that, say. I had at this at this point, I actually was already you know gotten my pink slip, but I hadn't actually been let go. It was a little. They they told me I was leaving in September, but it was like not till the next spring. And it's a little like Princess Bride, where Wesley got abducted by the dread, dredge pirate Roberts, and every every evening you say, "Good job today, Wesley, scuttling the gal and mopping the floors. I've uh, done a wonderful get, day's work. Have a good night's sleep. I'll likely kill you in the morning." Well, that was kind of how I D- felt. Disney discovered all the penises you were drawing into Atlantis, and they, they had to let you go. <laughs> anyway, so this was my fi- I knew this was my final Gong Show. Okay. And 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 Disney had owned the rights to to Princess of Mars and the whole Martian series for years. And and I had actually read like a couple of takes on it. Ted and Terry, who had written Aladdin and went on to write Shrek, um, had had written uh, a version of it that was really good for live action. And I thought, you know, I, I think the problem with it, and it's funny, because in hindsight, later on, Robert Zemeckis said this reason he turned down directing it was he kind of read Princess of Mars and said, wow, George Lucas and Spielberg and all these other people have really picked over this material already. Mm. And I kind of thought that too. I thought the first book in the series at this point was a little too... Well, I didn't know Zemeckis was approached. Cool. Yeah, it was a little... It was a little too plain to vanilla. I thought I thought some of the other books were a lot stronger. And when you look at the John Carter that, that Disney and, and Pixar did, they really... You could tell they wanted to get to the other books because because they, they put a bunch of gods of Mars into Princess of Mars. So I took the approach, well, I, let's let's do this for animation. And and so it's going to have to be a little kid-friendly. Kind of, I'm going to have to do a little like what they did with Hunchback. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, add add some more humor elements to it. But Which isn't that kid-friendly when I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little dark. But... Um, but I thought, you know, I took what I what was my favorite book of the series, which was Mastermind of Mars. And nobody thinks about that, because John Carter is not even in that book. But the central premise there is this this character, Ulysses Paxton, another man from Earth, gets transported to Mars, again mysteriously, don't know how, and he ends up a slave to the Mastermind of Mars. And at Mars, they didn't do plastic surgery, they went whole hog. You know, if you were, like, big, rich, evil, and old, like, you pretty much had your brain transplanted into a beautiful young servant girl's body. Mm-hmm. That's that was the Martian equivalent of plastic surgery. It's a good gig. And I got Roy Disney to laugh at that one. He he actually busted up when I presented that. <laughs> the um, and so he met this beautiful slave girl who was slated to to you know have the wicked evil queen's brain transplanted into her body. And of course he falls in love with her and he wants to try to save her. And the only way he can figure out to escape is to um, and 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 steal away into the queen's guard and 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 have enough you know and I forget what the setup was but he, but he can't escape in his own body basically so he he manages to turn the table on the mastermind and forces him to put his body brain into the body of a great martian white ape mm-hmm. those big huge things you saw like in the live action film it reminds me of that uh, runaway brain runaway brain and but here's here's the thing that got me on that he did it knowing the lab was about to be destroyed and he will never have the opportunity to have his brain put back in his own body again. So even if he rescues the slave girl, he will never be with her. But as a right, would but you he, have found some did way it, to, uh, some loophole to fix that? Well, and they, they, they found this loophole to fix it in the book, too. Okay. Yeah. And, and I had, and I wanted to make the girl a little bit more of a, of a proactive part of this. So my, my, my kind of additional like hook... My, my kind of additional hook into this is the slave girl 
the slave girl, you know, is in the, the evil queen's body, and she actually pulls off her own plot to try to stop the war the queen's trying to start by pretending to be the queen, and she runs into him, you know, the Ulysses Paxton's body, and sort of teams up with him, not realizing he's got the brain of a white ape inside of him. So, mm -hmm. so I thought that was kind of cool, because you could have, like, an animated white ape as your main character in the story, yeah. you know, in an animation that works really well. Now, was, better better than it would in live action, right? That, yeah, no, yeah. This, this is very kind of futuristic. Is this around the time of like Treasure Planet and Titan AE? Yes, yeah, right, right about um, before those movies were released, but kind of about kind of the time they were the, about being put into production development. Okay, so yeah. I mean, kind of that that space fantasy was kind of happening at that time. And obviously, and neither one of those did spectacular, so of course they weren't too thrilled with who was doing Space yeah. Manaphy, but... Wasn't Titan A very expensive? But, um, yeah, I thought Titan A looked great, though. Oh, it did and, look great, yeah. and, and it was, and it did moderately okay. It was, did okay enough to say, like, hey, look, you can pull this off in, in animation. And in hindsight, the story might have... I think I was... We were pitching also for Pixar at the time, and I, I think I was peddling this more as an all-CGI story rather than traditional animation. Oh, and we had done Tarzan. We had done Tarzan... Disney had done Tarzan oh. animated. So I thought, so okay, they, is, is... so they made that work. They're, they're, you know, and that was a big hit, so they may be more willing to do another Burroughs story. Yeah, and, and it And it was... I, I, I was told by it, but I said there were like nine, there were yeah. like a hundred pitches, and I heard mine like... Okay, focused. Okay, <laughs> focused like Batman. You're, you're a teenager now, but around this time, around 13, Superman the movie comes out. And what is that like for you? Because that's, I imagine, is the first media thing living up to the comic book. You know, again, it's so different from what the comic book was. you got to realize the Superman you have now, like the John Byrne revamped in 1985, was a result of him being influenced by the movie. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the Superman that we had before the crisis and before the destruction of Earth and the new, the new Earth was, was much more Silver age science fiction-y. Krypton was a much more brighter, happy place... Um, and the Fortress of Solitude was huge with the giant key. How can you not have the giant key? I'm sorry, it's it's so it's kitschy. It's so cool. So, so um, is this more like he's going to other planets and visiting alien races? Yeah, yeah, it's a lot more of that. And I was, you know, in, in hindsight, I realize now you've got to make if you're doing live action with actual real people, they sort of sort of have to act like real people. You know, they they can't be comic book characters, and the end. Uh, you know, in, in hindsight, Superman 1 gets better and better with age. Like, the older I get, the better that movie gets. I can't it, say as, that a lot. Which, yeah, yeah. Aside from, aside from the polyester collars on the, on the outfits, uh, other than that, that movie holds, holds up. <laughs> hey, I like those polyester collars. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so it was, to, but I will never forget, and I think I'm not alone in this, the moment, you know, and after waiting an hour to get there, you know, Krypton was cool, Marlon Brando, the explosion, there's not, but, but it's, you know, it, and we get a glimpse of him when he leaves the fortress, but it's, it's not to that scene where Lois Lane is hanging from the helicopter off the Daily Planet building, and he's, and he's rushing up, and it's like, you've got me, who's got you? <laughs> and it's just before he gets to it, and that, and, and just the moment he grabs the copter, the moment he mm. actually grabs the copter, and, and lifts it and her, and flies up to the top of the building, and I went, 
this. <laughs> this is what I've been waiting for. This was all through the 50s and every episode it was George Reeds. Couldn't he have ever done anything even remotely like this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was what nobody had the seen. Trampoline could not jump that high. Nobody had seen in live action before. And it was wow. Yeah. yeah. That was that was that was that like everyone's heart just jumped. And and watching him almost die and then you get into the 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 rescue, you know, the everything going on with the earthquake in California and then Lois dying and him turning back time and that's just epic. That was epic. And that was the whole story was just Wow, and and it's worth uh, noting too. Aside from the, the the brilliant John Williams doing breathtaking music for both of these, that some and of the, the uh, Chris Reeve performance too, like yeah. he was bigger than life, but he 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 really let you in just enough that you felt like this was a person. Fun fact, kids: Christopher Reeve went to Juilliard at the same time as Kevin Conroy and Robin Williams. And Robin Williams, yes, yes, yes. he's a little older than Kevin Conroy. Anyways, um, but a bunch of the people who did the special effects for Star Wars also worked on Superman. Uh-huh. I don't know if you knew that, but yes, they said yeah. in, in the special features. Uh, a lot of the production designing of um, of Krypton and all the white and stuff like that. I suppose I could say I was I was also really impressed with him in Death Trap with Michael Caine. And I could say, hey, that was Superman acted with Alfred. But then I think a lot of think, I think it'd be hard to find somebody who hasn't done a movie with Michael Caine. He's done. Yeah. He's been in like, <laughs> He he's pretty cool. Um, so it must have been great, you know, as seeing Star Wars at twelve, and then Superman thirteen, and then you know, best time 14, in human 15. history to be a sci-fi fan. Yeah, Rathacon right after that to was... so be like a, a, this kid coming oh, of age. Star Wars was just okay. You've seen two thousand one, right? Yeah, that was about all we had for the previous ten years. Yeah, a little slow. <laughs> it's a little so... slow. That was that was the high point for special stuff effects. floating in space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Logan's Run. You had Planet Planet of the Apes, which was kind of thrilling, but not really for kids. Not really. Yeah. Then you get this kind of modern Buck Rogers, and it. Then all of a sudden, shows... wham! <gasps> <laughs> Mind blown. Close Encounters was a little bit of a warm up to it, but yeah, yeah. Star it's Wars. The same was year though, so same. I mean that's. Um, do you ever seen Jaws as a kid? What's that? Did you see Jaws as a kid? I did. I did. You, you probably. Wouldn't. And I, I thought it was a lot less More scary than I thought it was going to be. Like I was really afraid to watch it for a long time, and it turned out to be. Well, it was scary. But, but you didn't it was, see it at, but at it was, six or seven. No, I, was, I mean I saw it on TV. I think. I, but it was it was entertaining. You know, it was as thrilling as it was and scary. It was still you could tell Spielberg kept it entertaining, fun. Yeah. Yeah, definitely one of the, the greatest of all time, right there. And uh, this is enough to do with Superman. Kind of like Poltergeist, also, 82. Mm-hmm. E.T., 80, 82. Raiders of the Lost Ark, 80, you know, 80. Yes, as, uh, as a 16-year-old, how, how do you feel about Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> if, if someone had asked me once, what's, is there or has there ever been a perfect movie? And, and Raiders was the fir- were the first words out of my lips. Yeah. I just, everything... Beat for beat. ...comes together. There's nothing Ooh. wrong with that film. I'd never change a thing. Yeah. The, everything, the flow, the pacing, the characters, the interaction, the three dimensions, the um, the plot, the intensity, the build-up, the, 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 the revelations. I mean, has there ever been a better introduction to a heroine than that film? Mm-hmm. Marion. 
It's been a long time. <laughs> Raiders was going to be like... Bam! Just right hook across the jaw. <laughs> I've learned to hate you. <laughs> Raiders is going to be like your rosebud on your deathbed, and like calling out your childhood memory. Raiders! Uh, I was so happy in Raiders. Well, you've got one of your own, which, which in, I'm, I'm, I think is up there too. I would, I would actually say it's equal perfectness. What? Oh, you dress up as him and, and film oh, shots. Oh, Back to the Future? Back to the Future. Back to the Future, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't see that in the original run because <laughs> I was negative three. Um, but again, it's, it's not... But that is my favorite. It's yes, not trying is. to be as epic, but what it's trying to be is so unique and so yeah. fun. And there's just a, just enough comedy and character and... That, and, yeah. And as Bob Gale said, it's not a time travel movie. It's a... What were my parents like when I was a teenager? When they were teenagers, and what would it be like to meet them? Yeah, and that's, that's the question mean. everybody has, which is why that movie succeeded. I everybody could talk about Back to the Future for days on end, um, but that's that's definitely one. Uh, saw it as a kid, VHS, loved it. Would keep revisiting it, and it just got better with age, and we, still we, loved in, it. In film school, we studied that for the editing, the sequence at the end where the, the car and he, our film... You know, and usually they go after, you know, it's always Citizen Kane, it's always yeah, know, like, like all those movies, but this is the first time one of our film professors said, look at the editing in this, look at the pacing, look at how they ratchet the tension up, look yeah. at look at exactly like how this, this, back and forth, and, and you know, it was awesome. I mean, he was comparing it to Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Sense. It was it was great. Yeah, it's excellent. Now, Biff, don't con me. Sorry, Mr. Sorry. I meant I was just starting the second coat. Oh, yeah. Mr. Fly, your book came in the mail. What did I tell you, Marty? If you put your mind to it. Yes, at any rate. Okay, so so uh, Raiders, a uh, Superman, this era. Very big influence. Yeah, was there a better uh, was there a better year for sci-fi yeah, and fantasy? Uh, yeah, than those that basically kind of five year year I, period. I, I kind of think all of cinema since then has sort of been geared towards blockbusters like that. Yeah, and I what mean, are the blockbusters? The Aside from Titanic, I'm going to say every other blockbuster has been sci-fi, fantasy, or comic book related. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. You know, yeah. yeah. And you probably felt felt some of that, you know, kind of with Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and so, yeah. Matrix and The oh. Avengers. Woo. The Avengers. Yeah. Okay, and, so and I was worried when they announced that. How are they going to pull this off? Really, our audience is going to buy this. Our audience is going to buy one movie with all these superheroes in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at any rate, so okay, so um, you're a teenager seeing this stuff. All this stuff comes out after Superman the movie, but you're still the Superman comic books TV. are still calling you. They're still even after Superman three and four uh, let you down. They're, they're still calling to you. They're still calling your name, well, and, and you're still before, drawn back to them. We had the Tim Burton Batman, which was huge, and, uh, and you know my little my little anecdote for that, right? No, which one's that? Oh, I was at this at this point. I was I was out of college, and I was at my first. Uh, kind of PA job in, in Hollywood and and was working for and one of the gals at, at ABC Circle Films had worked with Tim Burton. Really? Okay. And and she she overheard me in the halls talking about comic books and I was doing I'd been doing some script reading for an agent before that. She says, Oh you're a film studies major. You know like you know how to analyze scripts and things. Would you take a look at this Tim you know who Tim Burton is? He did uh, uh, 
you know, like, he's big he's adventure. emo like me. I know. <laughs> he's dark and emo. And and I don't really, I'm, I'm not really. She handed you Batman? And she handed me a first no. draft of Batman by Sam Hamm. No. <laughs> yes. I still have it. And did you say, Jack Rapier <laughs> did not kill Bruce's parents. This is wrong in here. Change this. And Circling. he did And in the original version of the script, he didn't. He didn't? No. <laughs> what? It was, it was I, I blame John Peters. <laughs> I'm just gonna <laughs> automatically blame John Peters. And that I think that came about when they cast Nicholson, and, and Joker ended up being a lot older than Bruce Wayne, so they had to figure out kind of a way to explain that age difference. You don't need to explain that. He's Any, older. So anyway, what? they thought they'd tie it together. I created you. You created me. This is. This is. <laughs> we created uh, each other. And yeah, so Stop that was. Stop you! I created you. And Robin. You. Robin was in the original version of the script as well. Oh. Okay. And I, I remember bringing it back to her. I just said, "This thing is going to make a mint." I mean, it was. I, I just said it was the, the focus. Huge. The focus was right. It was not. You could tell the tonally. It, that it, it was it not the nineteen sixties Batman. It was. It was an investigative reporter, and they were trying to determine this dark thing of the night. And the, and the, the 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 idea was behind the psychology. Although it had all the action and effects of a blockbuster, it was still the core element of the movie. Was what is it that drives a, a, a sane human being to dress up as a flying rodent and fight crime? Question: Was Lando Carusian in the original scripts? Uh, Harvey Dent was yes, and he was in more of it than you saw in the uh, the film. But they hadn't cast it then. No. Okay. No, they hadn't cast anything at yeah, that yeah, point. Yeah. No. no. Yeah, Tim Burton hadn't even. A and script. you're like, you know, Mr. Mom would be great. In this. <laughs> I think Joe Dante had been approached to it at this point, but turned it down or was dropped. So I, I don't know. I always thought Doesn't he would. Be, throw I thought Dante would be perfect for this. You know, he had he had directed Gremlins. He is really good with the dark, but keeping it fun. I still think he would be. They they he need throws to reboot. In a lot of Batman cameos in his movies. He does. I mean, know. those are definitely homages to the fact that he was the fan favorite pick at the time for Burton to to do the film. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't isn't the, the symbol in Gremlins? It is. That something happens. And in Looney Tunes, back in action when they're on the Warner Brothers backlot, they've got the Batmobile and Batman. There. Yeah, he's up on the yeah. ledge. Uh, what, what was what was the the signal? That was it, in, no, it was like was a in, bat crashes through, through and the hole is. Yeah, that's it was a, like through a brick wall, and the hole is the bat signal. It's, it's that Gremlins it to the new batch. Yeah, was, yeah, that, that was his little homage there. It's Which I great. think was, was out at the same time as Batman Returns. I love the Rambo references in Gremlins. <laughs> Those are hilarious. And he like lights the pencil on fire with the bow and arrow. <laughs> don't feed them after midnight. That movie, again, is another one of those. I don't know what to make of that. That was great, but i don't not quite sure what that was. But it was awesome. I'll never see that again. It was genius. Kind of. Tim Burton directed one of those. I remember. Um, those yeah, I remember you. You told me a lie once. You once told me a myth that the theater you saw it on, they would actually stop the projection reel during that joke in the movie. Like, there's no way they actually did that. There's no way. Can you finally admit that you were lying to me all those years ago? I didn't say they actually stopped it. You did. You said you I... said the theater house was in on the joke, and they would stop the projection reel, and then start it back up, and the, they would turn on the house lights, and the person would come out and say, "We're having technical difficulties, but stay seated." Did that happen? See, it's, you wish it happened. Happened in your imagination. That I don't believe that happened, but it would have been. Really okay, good, because I didn't believe no, that no, no. It happened. Okay, no, a friend of mine who ran like a bargain discount house, right? Like he on did the third it. Run, he did it. Yeah. 
Not sure. the theater I saw it in, but he told me that he would actually... Okay, see, this yeah. is why you don't play telephone, kids. This is what happens. Yeah. The story gets mixed up. Sorry about that. And you get a, a black two-face. Wouldn't okay. that be great? That would be just really funny. Okay. Yes, okay. Um, okay, so... I love Joe Dante. Met him. I was, I was an extra on the set of The Burbs. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Actually, I should say I snuck in. Old Tom Hanks. Thing, but... That they they like me. Yeah, met. Did they pay you? I got to meet Tom Hanks on there and Corey Feldman and or yeah, it was awesome. Corey, uh, yeah. That's good. I wish I got to work on the Universal back lot more. I've only been there once. It was really fun. It was the scene where they blow up the house, you know, and all the neighbors come running out in the middle of the night. Yeah. And there was, I I always talked to to Tom, Tom Hanks had like makeup on one side of his face like, after the explosion, and he kind of like it's goes, he goes to shake my my hand and kind of misses it and goes, oh sorry, my depth perception's off. I kind of only got one eye here. <laughs> Tom <laughs> Hanks almost shaked your hand. Yeah. Damn, that's pretty impressive. And made a joke of it while well, he did. That was nice. This is okay. Um. And of course, we know that uh, that Raiders played in uh, San Jose area for a year. year round for the one, whole one year. Two one two theaters in the country to play Raiders continuously for a year. Yes, and almost almost made it two years. It was it was only a three weeks shy, like um, about like it, it had played a full year. And I went to the one year anniversary showing and Frank Marshall, the producer showed up and he signed that book I showed you and talked mm-hmm. and everyone, che- and he plays the, the, the Nazi, uh, pi- the pilot of the, 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 the German, you know, flying wing. And like, so when he shows up in the film, like everyone cheers cause it's, Oh, it's Frank Marshall. <laughs> you met him in the bathroom. He said, Hey, have you met Steven? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I, I, I went to his test audience screening of back to the future three and recognized him after the screening. I was holding my bladder for so long, and so he had he come out and he said, "Oh yeah, I met you at the one year Raiders screening." And and Frank was, I guess, pretty impressed because people don't normally like, "Hey, you're Frank him, Marshall. Yeah. I love your girl, love your work." <laughs> and uh, he and he said, "Oh, by the way, do you know this guy is uh, Steve? Steve, uh, this is Kent." And I was, uh, uh, I, and, and I and yeah. I still hate you for it all these <laughs> all these years later. And, and Robert, here's Robert, and you know, it's like this. Like, Yes, yeah, on your deathbed. Have you met Steve? Do you know Steven Spielberg? He's like, okay. Back to the story. Back to this. Back to this. Take me back. We're way back. Okay, you're a teenager. You're a high schooler at this point. You still like comics. Comics is changing at this point. Um, maybe I don't know if it is. It's the Bronze Age. What's happening at around this time? Oh, the Bronze Age, the seventies. Well, just what happens now, like, when you're, like, 18, 19, and you're still kind of... Oh, about to go to college kind of a thing? Yeah, sure. Oh, that's when my own life gets a lot more interesting. I actually kind of stopped collecting comics. Uh, yes, but we don't care about your own life. We care about... Right, sorry. <laughs> but I, but your love of comic books. But that's, that's when I started writing my own TV oh, show based on our own fraternity at our junior college. That's why I love community so much. It's better, you know, more uh, more real than Animal House. It's still just as funny. I mean, not quite as 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 R-rated, more more PG-rated. But it okay. was. But my friends and I formed our own fraternity at uh, junior college. Okay, let me ask you this because because anyway. we don't care about that. Right. Um, let me. Okay. Um, okay. So at Which what is point? Kind of a geeky thing to do. If yeah. You like Animal House or a bunch of geeks. You know, it's. Yeah, you know. not really. Okay. All right. Okay. 
This isn't Revenge of the Nerds here. Uh, that, there, those are the geeks. Yep, those were, okay. Revenge of the Nerds. Okay. That was, my life was Revenge of the Nerds for a while. Okay, okay. Well, okay, you, you can't talk about John Hughes but I did. Uh, but I did, there was a comic shop in in Santa Barbara I discovered, and they, they had a lot more independent stuff. So that's where I kind of found Watchmen, well, which isn't independent, but that's when I started getting into more learning that comics had more, you know, mature stories out there. Okay, we're going to get there. We're going to get to Watchmen. We're going to get there. Okay. But first, okay, in, a, in two minutes, tell me about John Hughes. John, what? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> okay. Well, I know it's a big can of worms to open, but this is around the time of this story that this is happening, maybe. About how old were you in, when this John Hughes stuff? I, I, 85, 86, 87? I was literally two years outside the range of the main characters they were portraying. Very and I, I remember going coming out of Breakfast Club with my friend and going, I can see why this is rated R. Like, it's it's almost too... There's so much stuff going on there in there that, as a high schooler, I don't think I would even understand. But in hindsight, I can see all the, the really complex personal inner interplays going on and I remember being really annoyed with one critic who said oh John Hughes you know more teen angst and he's trying to pass it off as real drama and this guy I was so close to being a teenager this critic obviously completely forgot how important those little things were to you when you're just forming in your life mm -hmm. like they're, they're yeah, formative years okay. I see it I see it in you know I teach high school now part-time and you know, kids are, are, are dramatically affected by their peers. Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying to find a sense of their own identity, but they're very also... heightened, all the experiences. It's, it's, they're, they're very social, and, and you want to be perceived by, you know, people as being validated. Like, you're a new person, and everything's new, and all the emotions are new. It's like the first time you're in love, the first time you get your heart crushed, the first big win at a, at a game. It's, it's like, it's, it's such a time for firsts, and you know it's so hard to keep all that roller coaster ride of emotions in check. You don't know it's going to be okay. You don't know the heartbreak's going to end. You know, when you're older, you know, you know you get over it. That's that's why they call them crushes. Mm -hmm. You know, and oh, I never actually thought about that. Damn, <laughs> the world's a dark, dark place. Okay, made to suffer. Speaking of Mr. Mom, John Hughes wrote that as well. Fun fact. And, you know, I love the fact that John Hughes got it right. He, he dealt with all the stuff high schoolers dealt with, but put such a lighthearted spin on it that it made, it made it okay as a teenager to even laugh at yourself, mm -hmm. which is something like I think a lot of us were afraid to ever do because we all wanted to, be, wanted to look cool all the time. Yeah. Had, had to be cool. Did you get, like, your Bender trench coat? No, no, no. I was, I was very much the Brian kid. I was very much the, uh, the, the king of the dwe the king of the dweebs, from Sixteen Candles and Weird Science. He, he was, he was unfortunately he was my hero because that was the character closest to me. Now let's talk about. Um, we have a special kinship with some kind of wonderful, because um, some of it took place in uh, San Pedro and Palos Verde, and, mm. right? I think. Yes, it did. It was mostly in San Pedro, and I, I, I spent my summers growing up down in Palos Verdes visiting my mom, so I knew the area pretty well. Uh, You're like, this guy's as angsty as I am. This is great. Oh, I Keep love the angst. I gotta say, I, you know, I'm just gonna point everyone to uh, to my blog off of. You can okay. find it off KonaConcepts.net. I wrote a six six part like. <laughs> 
like epic uh, essay on a- analyzing some kind of wonderful what it meant to me, why it meant it to me. The fact I, I was I was also a reviewing pretty pink. I was I was a critic for um, our school newspaper, UCSB, film critic, and they actually sent me down to the Paramount lot, lot to watch it and and write the review for that film. They're trying to get the college audience in, so that was a really big deal. I got that my first cool, yeah. like yeah as a, was... as a film reviewer. <laughs> If only you liked the Bengals more. <laughs> Love the Bengals. Yeah. <laughs> Saw them at Campbell Hall, UCSB. Ended their different life. You're like, story. ah, they're okay, I guess. Uh, this is, what <laughs> is like an Egyptian. So I, you know, I, <laughs> I, to this, I was such a nerd. I thought I, I thought I wasn't good enough to like go with the, like the regular cool kids and actually see a rock concert with them. You know, I was so scared of, of you know. Crowds and I'm people. glad life gets better in your 20s. It does. It does. It does get better. It was nice to step out. To step out and not do something nerdy and do something more like mainstream. And, yeah. And and uh, it was scary though, because these were the kids who picked on me in high school. You have, right. You have such kind of this Forrest Gump life of right place, right time. <laughs> the Bengals, Raiders playing year round. You know these. <laughs> They're probably filming some kind of runner for their unbeknownst to you, what like about you? like you... behind the corner. <laughs> I know. I did. You accidentally wandered on set. And, you D- know. D- Dean Kane like setting up shop, Fortress of Solitude in my condo. Yeah, damn. Oh, <laughs> that. You were there for that one, though. Yeah, that was okay. Um, okay, so is there anything else you can tell me about about loving comic books in your twenties and thirties? And then we'll get to the Dean Kane story. Uh, hasn't it been an hour yet? <laughs> well, the, the, yeah, but we're just gonna do this a little bit long. A little bit long. Stay with me. This is important. <laughs> okay. Because now, okay. So now we're getting to like the late twenties and thirties. Like mine? Or Yours? Mine? Yeah. Oh well, then I wanted to be a part of the magic. Okay. But were you still reading at the? Okay. When did you start I, reading Marvel? Says, You're more of a DC guy. But when did you start? When was Marvel kind of in the picture? Well, I mean, I uh, Marvel was in the picture with uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, and um, I tried. You know what? I Not actually, before that. No, Ultimate before that, I, I tried to get into it with X-Men and the in the Phoenix Saga. Okay. And I quickly realized so I could 80s. not. I could not afford to be a Marvel Comics fan because Marvel Comics and X-Men basically thread their storylines through t- like thirty issues a month. Mm-hmm. And I just said, I can't afford to keep up with this. Um, let me, let me get, let me, I'm going to get your opinion on this. Opinion on this. Okay. So, uh, Paul Dini said this. He said, DC heroes are proactive. Marvel heroes are reactive. And that's where he likes DC more. Like, DC's like, we're going to go find someone committing crime and stop him. Marvel's like, I'm just doing my everyday life. Something is going to happen to me, and I'm going to react to it and do the right thing. Um... You know, I, I, th- I think there's something to that. I think the DC heroes were always a little bit brighter. They're a little bit more out in front. They're a little bit more, like, doing things. And yeah, he's right. The, the Marvel heroes are reactive. They're more like, I'm just being a Norse god. I'm just being a mystic sorcerer of the arts. I'm just being a high school kid. And, like, all this stuff, like, comes at me. <gasps> so you do there's... like Marvel, for the record. I do. I do. I, you know, uh, like. Don't be a hater. Don't be a hater, Kent. No, like most, like most people, I it it's more like the individual characters. Gotta and, stay loyal to the genre. And the and the creators who are running on them. I mean, and and in college was that was also the point after Marvin George and the Titans, that was like most people. I started following the people who were actually writing. And drawing the comic books. What about the crossover of talent? Tell me about Jack Kirby doing Jimmy Olsen. 
That sounded dirty. Writing, Jimmy Olsen. Drawing. It was doing something. <laughs> that was that Jack was. Jack and Jimmy. Together I just say one of his issues of Mr. Miracle, the one where Darkseid interrupts Mr. Miracle and Big Barda's wedding, was the most. I don't. I'm not sure what I just read right then, but I am fascinated by this. And the art style was so different than anything I'd seen before. And I kind of followed Jack Kirby into his Captain America stuff, his bicentennial battles, and and it's so dynamic and so flair. I'm, uh, but the the Jimmy Olsen stuff was insane. I mean, the the storytelling was just nuts, and and wildly creative and inventive, along with the new gods and. Is Kirby the king? And and one heck of a gentleman as well. Yes. Have you met him? Yes. Damn you! Damn! <laughs> Needing the. Le- it was. It was. While well, I was at Paramount. Have you met Stanley? I yes. Or did you just see him? Because I saw him with you. Went to that screening. No, he. But we he, didn't. I didn't meet him. He spoke at a lunchbox lecture at at Disney. And <laughs> damn you all the Damn you, Snowflake too. Shut up. Shut up. But while I was at Paramount, Jack and Sam were both there. I was. No, it was. It was. It was. I haven't heard the story. Really? You yeah, haven't, I haven't heard, heard, this heard one? your Stanley story or Jack Kirby story? Uh, well, I mean, Stanley. We just we all saw him speak at a lunchbox lecture. He was talking about Stanley Media, and you know, some of us just said hi afterwards. I, I mean, you great guy, total so showman, a total, legend. total I mean, showman, totally like you know, fantastic, you hate super Stan. He is the guy you see in the movies. You know, he is just Mr. Mr. Fun, Mr. Excelsior to the yeah. to the end. But I was I was working at Paramount as a page. Mm-hmm. So we were like the uh, the group the we, if there are PAs then there are people lower than PAs there are pages, okay. and we're like you know people who usher audiences into into sets you know sound stages for live screenings. And, but I got to give uh, tours of the studio as well. That's awesome. I've heard the lots. freaking Stephen Hawking story twenty times, but not the Jack Kirby one. How cool is it that I got it's to give a tour cool, to okay? Stephen Hawking it's of the not, Starship Enterprise no. Deep Space Nine? Christina Ritchie's much cooler than Stephen Hawking. That was cute, be. too. That okay. was really fun. Okay, but back to Jack Kirby. <laughs> and and so I'm, I'm working the door at the, the Bob show. And Bob Newhart, it was one of his TV shows, and it's the one where he's a comic book artist. And, and I see this guy in like a three-piece suit, and he's on the VIP guest list. And he's got a stack of, of these, these hardbound Marvel collected treasury story editions with him. So like he's this huge Hollywood Did he give executive. You one? No 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 and I asked him, Oh, what are is that amazing fantasy story? Like, oh yeah, yeah, I brought and and one was like a detective comics reprint and he said, oh, I can't well I, I got in backstage because you know you know who's on the show tonight. I said, No. And he said, Jack Kirby and Bob Kane. And Bob Kane? What? <laughs> what? And Alan Silvestri. The Dark Knight And Alan Silvestri Yeah. And you watched the show, you were like... And I was there, and I was there backstage with them in the green room. No! I, yes! What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Is there, is there no after, after, after the audience was all set, and they're... they're, they're this uh, is why sleep. bad things happen to you in life, okay? <laughs> this is the universe making up for it. Every flat tire you get is going to be like, remember that time you met Jack Kirby and Bob Kane? Okay. 
Well, what was Bob Kane like? <laughs> Just tell me anything about Bob, Bob Kane. Bob Kane was like the ladies' man. Tell you me know, anything. he was—he had his dapper black cape and his—and he a cape? was. Cape? He wore a cape. Yeah, he, he had dressed like a like drench, trench coatish thing, and he was—he—he he was charismatic. You could tell this guy was like James Bond. To he's yeah, like very very Damn, charming. Were these guys really old. But then? but Jack was yeah yeah he's pretty old. He was like a few years before he dies. But Jack was Jack was more like the consummate gentleman. You know, like like the kind of kind of the uh I hear it's the kind, kind of, of the, the shyer soft spoken yes kind of very introverted. very much so but just so powerful a, a presence though just just like someone you know you're in the presence of somebody who's who's really awesome but also really humble about it like like really like like is just there to sh- share a gift and he's just so grateful to 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 tell stories you know and and just did your like heart you, jump out of your <laughs> chest <laughs> i was i was done at, at you know and i you know i was just flabbergasted and both of them i yeah i i, I just yeah. didn't even know what to say i wish i said i wish i collected more of his books when i was a kid i really wish i, I wish camera more. phones were around <laughs> yeah. seriously but i loved i loved what he did with captain america i loved what he had done and at that point, I hadn't even discovered his earlier stuff, but I had known his DC stuff, the the Mister Miracle, the New Gods, which was really out there. And, um, and this, though, and this, Bob Newhart was like Variety or scripted. Uh, it was scripted. Like, yeah, yeah, it was just a half hour. But were sitcom. they like playing themselves? And, but they were playing themselves. It was. I think it was kind of like there. a comic book convention episode. Okay. Yeah. Hey, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Newhart is is no, you know, lame guy either. So he's he's an awesome dude. No, so that was yeah, yeah. Wow, you know, I think he owned land out here in, in Malibu. Bob Newhart? Yeah, no, maybe not. I always get them confused. I think it was I, Dick Van Dyke. I think Tom Hanks used to live out here. Really? North North Ranch or no? Uh, uh, okay. Stop name dropping Tom Hanks. Stop. Not every story is about Tom Hanks. Okay. Um, Forrest Gump was. Yes, that, okay. True. That was my fault. That was my fault. I think the character of Forrest Gump transcends the actor. Though. Okay. Uh, any Anything else about Bob and Jack? <laughs> Bob. Nice you're on a first-name basis now. <laughs> um, Did they like, here's a little sketch kid on a napkin? Oh, you know, I was I was a pro. I really I I really didn't say too much to them because they were working on the episode and I was trying to stay professional. No, that would have been worth losing your job over. <laughs> what are your priorities? Spend a hundred dollars on a comic. Uh, you know, I I you know, being not being more of a writer and not an artist, I'm always in tim you know, like in awe of artists because they have something I don't. I, and I really have always thought that. I always thought, like, anyone can write. Anyone can sit down and write at a typewriter. That's not actually true. Right? Writing is, is also the talent is. itself. But, but, but it's easier to see talent in an artist. It's easier to see. And, and I, I would talk to my students about this and other artists. With hand-drawn, you, you really kind of, some part of you needs to be born with the aptitude. I knew this in high school when I tried taking drawing classes over and over and over again. And a friend of mine who was three years younger than I was on his first day was better than I could ever hope to be. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just said, okay, he was born with something that I was not. And it's kind of a hard realization. Mm-hmm. And it's a little like what Ratatouille talked about. It's not, not everybody can be a great chef, but anyone can cook. 
and and what the computer has done. Keep and, an eye on that Brad Bird kids. He's going places. Yep, yep. <laughs> and, uh, and even in The Incredibles talks about, you know, if kids are born with special gifts, why can't they use them? Uh, it's a bird showing off when he flies. Exactly. And, you know, not every, you know, what is it? What was that in, in, uh, in the, uh, that movie with Billy Crystal and, and Bette Midler? Or oh, parental like, guidance. Yeah, we oh we don't we don't keep score. What? Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is we're gonna go into a speed round, people. Speed round. Okay, so I'm gonna name some stuff because you kept up with with comics and media throughout kind of the the 90s at this point in the 2000s. So you're gonna tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, so speed round. Batman the animated series. Bruce Timm, Paul Dini, the. Epic Danny Elfman scored dark, dark deco, you know, haunt, haunted, uh, brilliant, tragic villain characters. Excellent stuff. Okay. Um, Teen Titans. Go! The animated series. <laughs> <laughs> Teen Titans! I love Beast Boy and Terra. I love their arc. I love Raven and, and that, that epic Trigon story. Robin going off the yeah Robin knocking over ten ton robots with a kick is was a little much. It was nice. It was nice to see him kind of be defeated by Deathstroke in a sense, and and have his own anger be the thing he needed to overcome the most. I love how that show kind of subversively started as as a very kids kind of oriented thing, but managed to get very very dark themes in the midst of of all the the fun action. Very good. Um, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. The Cadmus storyline, um, just uh, epic, epic stories. Man, the way they recreated comic book storylines and made them fit in that half-hour format, and made them fit with with different casts of characters, and they never really felt out of place. Joker and the Wild Cards, though, you know, the hereafter, Solomon Grundy. Um, it, Justice League does not get enough credit for how brilliant those stories were for bringing epic Silver Age stories into a '90s mature modern-day sensibility. Smallville. Or 2000. Uh, Clark, the S. The initial Rosenbaum. But, but for me, it's that initial premise of, of a teenage Clark Kent, partially depowered because of all the kryptonite, kind of fumbling along and growing up with his skills along with everybody else. And, um, and, and that, that epic friendship with Lex Luthor. Um, pa Kent, John Schneider, great guy. It's uh, you know just um, you know an adventure-filled show, and and really uh, uh, managed to make Superman work a depowered Superman work, like on a budget for TV, but still felt like like the mythos. Really felt like you know a comic book, and and I think and I think brought comic book sensibilities to a whole bunch of like just normal non-comic book fans and teenagers. I don't know how much you know about this one, but the Batman cartoon. Really liked it as it got it got better as it went went on. It um, I love the the Batman versus Dracula direct to video movie is the darkest thing Warner Brothers animation has ever done. There's a scene where Joker breaks into uh, a blood bank and he's breaking tubes and drinking blood and lapping it off the ground because he's part vampire. I mean, this is dark. And Batman finally, finally, you know, gets his butt kicked. And I say that in the best way because, honestly, Batman should be human. If Batman goes up against a two-ton robot, he should not be able to judo kick it to the ground. Yeah, Robin. <laughs> Punk. 
So, and this was this was the first villain that Batman absolutely could not defeat physically, nor should he be able to. He had to outthink him. That's I love that movie. Okay. Um, okay. X Men and Spider Man briefly. The Crime Singer and, and Sam Raimi. Oh, that started kind of a new renaissance. I left. I was. I was actually in a meeting at, at Disney, and they broke into the meeting. It's a high-level like executive say, I just want to let you know they signed Raimi to do Spider-Man, and the executive was like, "Yes!" Like even a Disney executive, we're all pulling. Like he just said, sometimes they get it right. And like everyone in Hollywood, we all want to pair the right person with the right project. And Raimi's dark energy was definitely a perfect match for the web-slinging, zingy, zaniness of of the character. And and as far as as singers, X-Men. Um, I, I will say this, uh, Sing, Singer's own quote after the first one was he was sitting next to an executive at the screening, and, and I think they had wanted a bigger budget for the ending, and I think you can see in the first X-Men it seemed like they were constrained a bit, mm-hmm. just a little bit, and the executive literally said, I wish we had given you $20 million extra to make this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a great film. X2 totally fulfilled that promise. Um, I... You know, I, I I love the fact that again, like with Superman, you've got to make them people, and and Singer found that connection to make, you know, the outcast people. Um, you know, you know, have you tried not being superhuman? Have you tried not being a mutant? You know, and, and that whole that whole connection with you know kids who are you're gay or trying to come out, and and you know he found he found a way to make the characters relatable to an audience, even if they were mutants and big superpowers and stuff. And of course, Hugh Jackman just not you know not only was he playing the biggest name and you know the biggest character in the cast, but he made him human and relatable. You liked him no matter how feral and and kind of vicious his character could be. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there is there is definitely magic there, and there there a lot of characters to to juggle. Did a good job with it. Okay. The end is soon, people. Don't worry. Okay. Talk briefly about Iron Man and the Avengers. Oh, it, it, is there any way to talk briefly about that? <laughs> I, they cracked the code. They cracked the code. They, they definitely figured out how to make superhero action. And I think CGI went a long way to, to making that happen. Like the, the effects caught up to the point that you could actually realistically tell these stories with, with real people. And, and make it look good. And, and honestly, they, they, had, they didn't stray too far from the comic book for the most part. I think it's really ironic to say, we finally figured out how to bring comic books to the big screen. We just bring them to the big screen instead of trying to mess them up too much. And she, we don't need Catwoman to become, to fight a perfume executive to make her relatable <laughs> to women, right? You know, you don't need to totally mess, you don't need to give her a supernatural origin. You could just... That's enough about Marvel. That's, enough. Mar- that's all Marvel gets. Damn it. Okay. All right. Batman Begins Dark Knight. Oh, Batman Begins is a brilliant epic. Dark Knight is is a crime thriller, edge of your seat nail biter. Um, I, I still think you run into problems trying to take a guy dressing up as a flying rodent and make him work in the real world. I think the world still needs to be a step removed from the real More world. More Art Deco. Yeah, yeah. The first I love the the Gotham City designs in, the, in Batman Begins. You could kind of tell where they 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 seemed a lot more inspired by the animated series. Like, not quite as wild as the Tim Burton Batmans, but still, you know, stylistic enough, the sepia tones, the dark shadows. Uh, 
opening it up in Chicago and doing all the blues was neat for some things. It gave you a lot bigger staging areas for actions. On other ways, it kind of dwarfed the action. You know, it seemed almost too... You know, it's not the tension, but but the tension was so riveting, and the characters are so well drawn out. It's it's two and a half hours. It's there aren't that many action set pieces in it, but you are on the edge of your seat the entire time. He knows how to build tension. Uh, uh, Heath Heath Ledger like had a brilliant interpretation of the Joker, not really comic book like, but to make him work in the real world. That was really. It's really hard to make Two Face work in the real world. Yes, it is. I gotta say that the makeup and CGI was fascinating on him. I can see why they only have the movie for ten minutes. That would have been really expensive to keep going. <laughs> okay, Man of Steel, and then we're close, which comes out in a couple weeks. Actually, no, it comes out. And in, I love in that June, Batman Begins. So everyone needs to go back and rewatch that over and over because it's it manages to brilliantly fuse multiple villains, the beginning storyline, uh, a mystery, uh, a romance, and it's Batman story. Are you looking forward to Man of Steel? I am looking forward to Man of Steel. Okay. Now, we're going to close with this. It's going to be it's going to be Superman returns only with all the punching I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, hopefully. It's it's going to it's going to be the appropriate kind of, Lois. And an age appropriate Lois. Yes, I, 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 man, Superman Returns was had flaws, but I, I appreciated its heart. I yes. really did. It, it brought it, it. It Singer really understood what made Superman one and two work so well that yes. they they veered wildly from. I, I don't understand. They had a good thing with Superman one and two. Why make a comedy with three? I that never made a lot of sense. To um, me. Okay, we're gonna close with this. We're gonna close with this. Okay. It did have more. We're gonna close. Okay. We're gonna that. close with this. Tell us. Your story, okay. Tell us about Lois and Clark and Dean Kane and Terry Hatcher. What? Yes. <laughs> Just tell the five-minute version. The five-minute version. Um, I was sitting in my my condo one day, and some and some guy from NBC knocks on my door and says, "Hey, we're shoot we're shooting a scene at the high school across the street. We need to do like a half-day pickup shot and a kind of a bachelor pad. Would you be interested in renting us your condo for this?" I said, "Sure." And it's what's the show about? Oh, you know, it's an overworked LA cop. Wife drives him out of the house, so he has to find a bachelor pad. And the overworked cop was Dean Kane. <laughs> and how did you watch Lois and Clark before? Oh yes. oh yes, yeah, oh yeah. My my roommates and I in college used to watch that all the time, and we. Uh, and have you met Terry Hatcher? I have. Where? Uh, <laughs> uh, two and a half men on the set of Two and a Half Men. <laughs> I, I knew someone who worked there, and and it was and she was and a friend of mine went to high school with her up in up in. Uh, I guess you don't have anything Sunnyvale. to say about that experience. Oh, about what experience? About meeting Terry Hatcher. Oh, I really? do. No, I'm getting to it. Oh, you're getting to no, it. No, okay. so so I'd actually known a friend of hers or someone who knew her on her cheerleading yeah, be nice squad. Be nice Lane. On cheer on the cheerleading squad in in Sunnyvale, at um, I forget. I think it was Homestead High School, if if I recall right. And I just and I just kind of walked out and said like, and she was and she was still like the cheerleader type. She was still like the person who's on set who just wants. You know, everyone to be happy and everyone to be fun and, and energetic. And she was so bright and bubbly and and just that's so great to meet you. And I'm like, oh yeah, did you know so and so who went to high school with you? And she's like, I I vaguely kind of remember. She was like, you went to high school with me? What? <laughs> and like, no, 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 I was yeah. And um, but uh, you know, and she was still that that cheerleader type. You know, it was it was very fun. And what was striking to me about this, because here's this accomplished actress. She had been like the most downloaded image on the internet with Lois and Clark. She had she had done James Bond movies, and 
and and serious roles and she's you could still sell like most actors and having been an actor myself for a while a lot of us a lot of people are on stage because we you know we have insecurity issues or you know like we like jumping into other characters and being something other than ourselves and it was so fun to kind of see that 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 persists in the sense that you know you still you know like you kept the humbleness you know, and she looks around. hot in old age. Anyway, just she, she is holding up well. And I, I was there for Dean Kane, and we got to talk to him for a, f- a few minutes. And what a gentleman, awesome guy, super yeah. friendly, super chill. I actually had met him. I, I had saw him at the movie theater another time, but didn't really get to talk to him because I was away from there. But very nice guy. Got to share surf spots with him. He, he surfs, he, you know, we were talking about his favorite spots in France and Malibu, and I actually told him one that he didn't know about. And he was like, yeah, I'll try that. And, and he likes coffee bean and tea leaf rather than... How did you get me um, that signed picture of him? I, t- I talked to the location manager um, who, uh, who had come to me originally with this show, and he came by on a follow-up, and I gave it to him, and he got it to to Dean's publicist and Dean was remembered us. What a nice guy. He remembered us and wanted to help out. What a nice guy. Okay. Well that geek hour went kind of long. But so that is the... That probably was an hour that time. Yeah that was 46 minutes. That is the complete history of Ken Solvera's love affair with comic books growing up. I'm sure he left a little out but that's okay. Um, I think there was a 10 year period in his 30s where he didn't care. But anyways, it is what it is. I was working at Disney at the time. Yeah, it was a very time consuming job. And then he had um, about 10 years after to catch up on stuff because he had a lot of free time. (laughs) True. And uh, okay. Then I wrote my own comic book. Then that. Look look forward to that. That should be its own podcast. Yes, Yes, it will be. Okay, goodbye.